You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I inspected the knife in my hand. That's the shoon. Feel how light it is compared to the Wusthof. I pricked a finger on the blade's witchy chin, testing. The handle was supposed to be moisture-resistant, but it was quickly going humid in my grip. I think that design is better suited for someone of your stature. I looked up at the sales associate, bracing for the word people always use to describe short girls hungry to hear thin. Petite. He smiled like I should be flattered. Slender, elegant, graceful. Now there's a compliment that might actually defang me. Another hand, the skin several shades lighter than my own, appeared in the frame and made a grab for the handle. Can I feel? I looked up at him too, my fiancé. That word didn't bother me so much as the one that came after it, husband. That word laced the corset tighter, crushing organs, sending panic into my throat with the bright beat of a distress signal. I could decide not to let go. Slipped the forged nickel and stainless steel blade, the shoon, decided I liked it better, soundlessly into his stomach. The salesman would probably admit a simple, dignified, oh. It was the mother carrying her crusty-nosed baby behind him who was the screamer. You could just tell she was that dangerous combination of bored and dramatic, that she would gleefully, tearfully recount the attack to the news reporters who would later swarm the scene. I turned the knife over before I could tense, before I could lunge, before every muscle in my body, forever on high alert, contracted as if on autopilot. Jessica Knoll is an editor for Cosmopolitan magazine. Her new novel is The Luckiest Girl Alive. Thank you for joining me, Jessica. Thank you for having me. And I'll just say I'm formally editor at Cosmopolitan magazine. Oh, okay. Yes. So now you're a full-time novelist and screenwriter, That's I hear. That's correct. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that. But first, I want to just discuss this, the novel, which is really powerful mm-hmm. in in a variety of ways. When we first start reading it, we encounter this incredible voice. I haven't read a, a woman's voice like this, I don't think ever, uh, Tiffany Finelli. So talk about just creating that voice and finding it, because it seems like you just got on that bicycle and rode it all mm-hmm. the way from New York to California. <laughs> Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I Her voice, I knew before I sat down to write this book that I wanted the character to have a really distinct voice. Um, it, I just respond to novels that have that really distinct voice. Like, I love the voice of Dolores in She's Come Undone by Wally Lamb. And I heard him say that her voice came to him in the shower. And so I sat down to write this character who is kind of... You know, she has sharp edges and she's biting and she can be vicious and she can be funny and she can be compassionate too. But I really wanted her to have some thorns. um, And I thought that that would be a fun character and not just a fun character, but a real character to write because I know women think some of the things she thinks um, and, and don't, and she doesn't say them out loud and you know a lot of people don't either so I wanted everyone to have kind of a glimpse inside the mind of someone who on on the surface appears to be very pleasing and sweet and um you know and will tell you what what you want to hear and to see what's really going on inside of her mind I think that as readers we really respond to that because she thinks 
and thus on the page says all the things that we think Mm -hmm. and say. So we really identify with her. And I think that's an, uh, you use that to create a a kind of a plot tension. Mm -hmm. When you created the voice, did you think of it in terms of being a plot driver in itself? Yes, this this kind of disconnect between what is going on in her head and what she's saying and the way she's presenting herself to the world was something I was conscious of from page one to the last page of the book. Um, it's a it's a very this is kind of the it's kind of commentary I think on the way women are uh, feel like they can't really speak their mind or that they have to be people pleasers and play these different roles for different people in their lives. So I kind of wanted to show someone who was doing that but was railing against it in her mind. I think in a sense, too, uh, there's a, a sense of almost uh, satire mm-hmm. in this book in the way that she's obsessed with kind of material things mm-hmm. and labels and uh, stations and class. And I, I think that you do a great job of playing with that and making it entertaining. But it's just a, she's just a little bit over the top. And you give us that in the very first, at the opening of the book. Yes, she's obsessed with, um, you know, design like who she's wearing and what her hair looks like and what her makeup looks like and she she can't have too much makeup on you know that's the kind of thing in New York City is like everyone's a little effortless but you put a lot of effort into looking effortless so she's (laughs) she's constantly trying to um kind of to to catch up to everyone around her like when she's in high school she is an outsider and then she moves to New York City and she's a little bit of an outsider too so she's constantly trying to catch up and play this role and I think in terms of the the picking up on a little bit of satire I mean what I was really trying to do is there are a lot of tropes you see in this book that you see in traditional women's fiction, which is that she works at a women's magazine. She writes about sex. She's engaged to be married and she's planning this lavish wedding in Nantucket. But I like the idea of the fact that I worked at a women's magazine and people thought, oh, okay, this is the book you're going to write, this kind of plucky heroine um, who's kind of trying to figure out, you know, is this a comedy of errors as she's getting married and and to show that actually this is not what that book is at all. I just wanted to turn those tropes on their heads and um, also make a commentary about how – we can trivialize some of these issues that women deal with, like their weight or feeling this pressure to be married by a certain age. And a lot of people kind of minimize these issues and write them off as very shallow issues. But society tells women that if you don't fit this mold, that you're you're not worthy. So I think um, I think these are actually heavier issues than people give them credit for. And I wanted to show what it's like as a woman to to feel the pressure at, you know, coming from all angles, from her job, from her fiance, from her mother um, and, and just from society in general. Uh, that's, I think, really interesting and really important because what to us, what is maybe not so important to us that we might joke about or think this is interest is mm-hmm. trivial is to somebody else it is their lifeblood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very critical. I, somebody might look at me and see piles of books and say, Rick, what do you do with all those books? To me, that's life and death mm-hmm. stuff. And I, I think that you do a good job of showing us how it's what's important to the person on the inside that matters. Mm-hmm. And for her, I like that you say life or death stuff because 
as you, if you read the book and you get to what has happened in her past to make her who she is, the fact that she was an outsider at this prestigious school that she was enrolled in um, and that the kids were able to identify that in her, it was a life or death situation. I mean, she almost lost her life. And so her for the rest of her life, the kind of lesson she's taken away from that is that it's dangerous to be an outsider and that she has to do everything she can possibly do to fit in. Because if she can fit in, it's a form of protection for her and she won't be singled out again. And as well, this is a very razor-sharp vision of the American class society. We like to think America doesn't have classes. I think we're becoming less convinced of that as time goes by. But nonetheless, that's the idea. That's not the actuality as she experiences it, is it? No, right. She she certainly sees, you know, that there is there is a distinct difference between where she's come from and where her classmates have come from. And um, she kind of learns the little intricacies of how to come off as though you're from old money and that you know what you're doing and that you're well-traveled and you're well-educated. And so um, she realizes this at a very young age that, you know, she's she's not like the others. One of the things I thought that was really interesting to me was the way that you've constructed the timeline of the book and the way it reads. Uh, when you wrote it, did you have, make a map of what the whole story was and what the whole plot was? Or did you just kind of start off in that voice and freewheel it through the whole thing? I kind of, it was a little bit of freewheeling going on. I mean, she, I started with that scene in Williams-Sonoma. She's registering for her wedding and she's looking at a knife and she's thinking about plunging it into her fiance's <laughs> stomach. So right away you're like, okay, we have a girl planning her wedding in New York City. This seems nice. Oh no, she wants to stab her fiance. Okay. Like I wanted to set the stage right away that, um, that th- there were, th- this was going to be an unexpected, um, book and that th- this was a kind of a, a character you hadn't seen before. So, um, so I I started with that scene and then I ended that first chapter that was in her present when she's 28 years old and living in New York City. And then I just realized I have to go back in the past and explain exactly what happened to her kind of in real time. And so it unfolded very organically. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I thought was really powerful about the book is the way that uh, she, in her youth, the way she experiences um, the pressures from her parents and the pressures mm-hmm. uh, of the school. And so when you are creating those kind of scenes and those kind of pre- pressures, uh, you were informed a bit by your own experience. Mm-hmm. I was. Um the pressure from her mother, her mother is kind of a stage mom in a way, like mm-hmm. she wants her um, to kind of rub elbows with the kind of fabulous old money families. Um, and she wants her to befriend the daughters of these families. And she wants her, you know, she said there's a scene in the beginning where she's like, it's very important that we send you to this high school because 20% of the graduates end up at Ivy Leagues. And, uh, you know, that's where you're going to meet the you're the best caliber of men to marry. So for her, it's not about going to an Ivy League to get the best education you can. It's so that you can meet, you know, the right kind of man. So um, those were things that uh, those pressures 
fortunately, my parents never put that kind of pressure on me. They were actually, they kind of swung the opposite way and saying, like, don't feel pressure to get married. Um, you know, just focus on your career, that sort of thing. But I wanted Ani to feel this pressure very intensely um, from her mother and from her parents. The other pressures, too, that you do a great job of showing are the pressures from her peers. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to talk about creating these different, uh, the groups of characters, the groups of women, the groups of young men Mm -hmm. who uh, inhabit the novel. Because for as off-putting, in a sense, as Ani is, we, I really liked being with her. I mm-hmm. thought I, you got the feeling that Ani was, at least with the reader internally, being completely rippingly truthful with the people she was with. Maybe she was playing with it a bit. So talk about creating them and how much did you inhabit their minds when you were writing their parts from the outside? So Ani is a little bit like the Greek chorus, I guess. So she she sees people very well. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that she realizes very quickly she's an outsider. So she's like she's an observer. So she she is paying attention to the things people say and and things like, oh, I need to pass the salt and pepper together. Okay, I have to do this. You know, all these ways to to fit in with everyone. So she she really is pay, she really can see people for who they are. She's become a little bit of a hustler. And so she gives the most accurate read back to the reader, which is kind of fun to see because mm-hmm. she's surrounded by, I mean, it depends where she is, but, you know, in her present day life, like she's surrounded by this cast of characters at the women's magazine. And, you know, there's the one kind of, the one editor who's a little bit higher up than she is, and so she has to kind of kowtow to her and um, and smile and, and be like, that's a great idea, Eleanor, even though Eleanor has just stolen her idea. So, um, so I, I think I just wanted her to be someone who really could see people for who they were, um, and I wanted her to have that sort of emotional intelligence. You know... From the very first scene, this is a definitely a novel of dissonance, mm-hmm. which I really liked. And in a sense, it, it gives it this feel from the very beginning of almost being a, a horror novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I was partway through it, and I'm thinking... American Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> <Did you? laughs> it's a little Patrick Bateman in her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I I wanted, I do like the idea that, I love the idea of creating a sense of unease. You know, mm-hmm. I love reading a book where I'm just like, I just don't know where this, it's, this is how I felt anytime I would watch The Sopranos. It felt like every scene was just packed with tension because it was like they could be just enjoying this beautiful dinner and this beautiful bottle of wine. It just felt like at any moment someone was going to be shot in the face. You know, you just (laughs) never knew it was going to happen. And I wanted to kind of imbue the book with that where you're in these seemingly safe spaces, you know, like, you know, tasting the food and the wine for the wedding at this beautiful house in Nantucket. But at any moment, like something horrible might happen to me. That is just like that keeps me reading. Well, mission accomplished. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I I thought all the way through. And two, one of the things, a certain kind of novel I really like, there are novels that where that are mostly plot where something mm-hmm. happens and this happens and this leads to this happening. But there are also no and the, what tension that keeps you going is, well, because this happened, what's going to happen mm-hmm. next? 
your novel falls into the genre of novel I call plot of revelation, hmm. where you introduce us to a character and immediately that we realize there's a lot about this character we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so as time goes by, we get to know her more and more and understand that we know her less and less. Mm-hmm. So there's this great kind of uh, tension of when you're going to reveal what what happened. And uh, could you talk about creating that kind of pacing in the book? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because I don't think I set out to do anything intentionally, but I did feel I kind of wanted to do... So with Gone Girl, you know, you see the character of Amy Dunn. is She's presented at first as someone who is this... Um, kind of heroic character like a a good girl you know and and um then you find out she's anything but that so I kind of did the inverse here where I present her as maybe someone who's not very heroic or not very noble you know she's designer label obsessed and she cares a lot about appearances um but then I wanted to slowly kind of uh crack her and to show you know this is this is why she is obsessed with the things she's obsessed with or this is why she is as hard on people as she is she's hardest on herself um and and to I like the challenge of introducing someone who maybe seemed a little bit unlikable in the beginning and then and for you to you know and for people to be a little bit defensive about her like I don't know if I like this character but then as you get to know her and as you get to know what has happened to her that if you could shift your thinking about her that seemed to me like I could take the reader on a real journey um, and I could change their mind about her as a character and I thought that seemed like a really interesting way to go about it. Talk about creating Luke. Mm-hmm. Luke. <laughs> um, well, Luke is Ani's fiance, and he, um, you know, her mother is thrilled that she is engaged to Luke Harrison because um, he's just your kind of typical, um, you know, uh, kind of elite northeastern born and bred and you know went to boarding school and his family is has this beautiful summer home in Nantucket and um he was just kind of raised with all the manners and class that Ani's mom likes to think that she raised her daughter with but but she didn't really um and he he is someone who um has had a very easy life he hasn't really dealt with um I mean, he can't really understand what Ani has been through, but he's also someone who wants a a wife or a fiance um, who has a little bit of grit to her. And so Ani says in the first chapter that she has um, that Luke could have married anyone. And, and, you know, she sat down to think long and hard about why he chose to marry her because she's pretty, but there are girls who are prettier than her. And she's a few years younger than him, but there are girls who are even younger than her. So what is it about her that has um, has made him so uh, in, fall in love with her? And, and she is able to ascertain that it's that she has this edge, this certain edge to her, this certain darkness about her, and that he's very attracted to that, but that she's had to kind of cap it to a certain degree. So he likes the kind of darkness about her, but not too much. So it's always this dance she's doing with him of like, um, how much of my real self can I show you? And how much is like, you know, that's just, I just can't deal with that. It's just, it's too much for me to deal with. So, um, so 
ultimately, he's not a bad guy. He's just not someone who's ever going to really get what she's been through or appreciate her as, you know, a a full and kind of self-actualized person. The heroine that she, I think, demonstrates herself to to be. Now, when we're reading the book, I think that the... uh, you do a great job of weaving in flashbacks and flashbacks and flashbacks mm-hmm. and taking us through the story and like taking us uh, working with its parallel time streams. And a lot of this uh, revolves around, you know, a very precise kind of uh, chronological plotting in terms of fashion and times and place. Mm-hmm. It, Talk about like, just the sheer orchestration of all the kind of uh, background details and research you had to do. Did you have to do research or did you know this world so well that you were able to just write about it? I knew both these worlds very well. So mm-hmm. I knew the, the world of her past um, and I knew the world of her present. Um, it, it, I did when I was working on it. I, I probably had um, I probably ha- the the shift you know, was in in her perspective and in the timeline was ushered along a little bit by the music I listened to. So in her past, I when I was writing the chapters in her past, um, I would listen to a lot of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and like these kind of like grungy bands from the <laughs> 90s who had a lot of angst and rage. And then in her present, I was listening to um, a lot of Lord. I listened to a lot of Lord and, and, and th- you know, um, what else did I listen to? I listened to Adele and um, and women, like really these really like strong women who kind of uh, talked about coming of age and the hardships of that. So I feel like the music probably helped me make that shift a little bit. But, you know, when she was a teen, the, the years that she's a teenager, those were the years I was a teenager. And the years she was 28, those were the years I was 28. So um, they were all pretty top of mind to me. I think you do a really good job in this book of speaking to the import of something uh, to women that I, men have a hard time wrapping their brains around, mm-hmm. which is weight. Yeah. I mean, uh, the way that she deals with her weight and the way she perceives herself, I, you know, it's a constant gauge that she holds up to herself. And I thought you did a, a wonderful job of at uh, portraying that. Thank you. Yeah, her weight. Her weight is another thing that she. When you meet her, she says she's going on this crazy diet for her wedding, and she's cutting out all carbs, and she exercises, you know, twice a day, and it's a really punishing regime. Um, and she she doesn't need to lose any more weight, but she thinks she does, and um, she talks a lot about to uh, about kind of rebelling against her body type. So she's meant, you know, there's a line in there where she says she's had a body like. Marilyn Monroe and she was in the fifth grade and um, she feels like that is something that uh, that got her in trouble when she got to high school and so she you know it's it's again about that idea of like women trying to disappear taking uh, take up taking up as little space as possible you know she doesn't want she doesn't want to um, be this kind of sexualized creature that people made her out to be when she was in high school. And so a lot of that has to do with dieting down to a certain weight and trying to lose, you know, her natural curves. Talk about these kind of exclusive, uh, as you call it, Tony high schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a public school guy, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm somewhat unaware of what, what it's like in them. 
Um, So the high school that Ani attends is a private school um, in an area that's a a suburban Philadelphia called the Main Line. And it's, um, it's, you know, I went to high school very similar and uh, grew up in that area. And it's a lot of... um, it's funny because I think when you when you see a certain portrayal of uh, kind of wealthy kids on TV, it's like they're all driving BMWs and the girls all have, you know, beautiful jewelry and expensive clothes. And it's actually not like that at, at these at these schools. It's more about um, it's all about like driving the beat up Volvo or the beat up old Jeep and like that this is like a, a part this is something that Ani's mom gets wrong too is that like she drives a this flashy red BMW and and you know wears a lot of makeup and wears high heels at all time and she thinks that's what it is to to be um to to show that you have money and and whereas the the class of people that Ani is running with they're a lot more subdued and it's more about your education it's more about your travel and it's more about your culture and and that sort of experience and so that's a learning experience for Ani too to see that um it's about it's it's about being less obvious than her her mother expects her to be early on uh, Ani in the book starts to refer to a documentary. And I think mm-hmm. this is a wonderful plot point for you because we're wondering, well, wait, documentary about what? Mm-hmm. And you do a good job of kind of building up to that. So talk about uh, creating the stream of plot and references and tension and readers understanding that lead up to one of them the scenes in the book which we will talk about um that you know your plot turns on and Mm -hmm. that involves this documentary so i love stories where the past and present kind of collide and and that's what's happening with her and it's happening because of this documentary and so um at, when you meet her, she is she's planning her wedding, but she's also getting ready to participate in this documentary that is going to shed light on this very violent um, and humiliating incident from her past. And her fiance Luke actually doesn't want her to participate in the documentary. And this is another way in which they're you know kind of philosophically different. He he just comes from the mindset of like you know yes, this horrible thing happened to you in your past, but you should just move on and not dwell in it and not continue to talk about it or what, you know, why would you want to revisit that period of of your life? And Ani's, you know, her, her feeling about it is that, um, she, people have a, a, a misconception about who she is. And so doing the documentary is her opportunity to set the record straight um, about the events from her past and about what people think about her. So the kind of obsess- obsession with her appearance has to do with the documentary as well because she wants to, um, she wants to, you know, tell her story and she wants people to see her as this sophisticated New Yorker who's getting married and who's getting married to a really great guy and so that she can't possibly be this person that people claim she was all these years ago. I mean, people think she's a monster um, due to this incident uh, that occurred while she was in high school. And so the documentary is about showing the world her reinvention and showing them that they were wrong about her, you know, Um, if there that there's no way she could have done the things that they say that she had done um you know at look at her now you know like she's successful and she's about to be married and these things wouldn't 
wouldn't be possible if she was really this kind of sociopath that everyone thinks she was back then. Let's talk a little bit about this, the one of the linchpins that mm-hmm. we, we can talk about. It, it's a scene that's just, it's one of the most horrific scenes I've ever read because it puts us in the the mind of a young girl who's being gang raped at a at a party mm-hmm. that's a really powerful piece of writing and it, it as powerful as everything that precedes it is in terms of the sharpness of the character that cranks up a notch that must have been difficult to write well, that so there are kind of two main events in the book, um, and and the gang rape is one of them, and then something you know else kind of evolves from there, um, and it kind of directly related to it. Um, but yes, so Ani starts at this new school, and she's kind of embraced by the popular kids, and she's invited to this party, and and she goes there and. Um, she drinks too much and she has very foggy memories of, of basically being passed around by three different guys at the party. Um, and then afterwards they all treat it like it was just a crazy wild party and, and that she was a willing participant in this. And it's very confusing for her because she's 14 years old and, um, she, she's, frightened and um, confused and she feels very violated but no one is really saying that anything untoward happened um so yeah so it was it is a very graphic and and powerful scene um and I think it goes a long way to show the way um the way rape is not always taken seriously um and and that's kind of the second violation is that in the aftermath she's kind of branded as a slut um instead of anyone really stepping forward and saying actually something criminal occurred here it's been just a little bit over two weeks since you wrote an essay for lenny Mm -hmm. um describing uh what happened to you? So I'd like you to talk about the decision to do that and your feelings between the time you wrote the scene and the time that you found yourself in front of people who were at your signing mm-hmm. and talking about the, what you ended up writing about in Lenny. So um, I recently wrote an essay where I say that um, that I'm also a survivor of rape and that that's how I was able to write this scene um, as kind of accurately as, as I have. And um, I wrote when I wrote it, I wasn't necessarily when I sat down to write the book, I didn't necessarily think um, that I would write about that experience, but it just kind of came out of me. And I think I hadn't talked about it for so long and I'd, I'd just buried it. And this was the first time I'd kind of revisited it in detail. And then when the book came out, a few things happened. Um, one, there were people and I, I just kind of wrote, you know, I, I didn't I wasn't very um, I didn't come out and I, I tried to be a little subtle about it. And I just kind of put out there this this 
horrible thing that had happened to her, but I, I didn't necessarily go overboard in labeling it. And then the amazing thing that happened was so many people came out of the woodwork to label it as gang rape. And that was very validating for me because when I was younger, um, nobody nobody called it rape. Um, so for people to read the scene, for me to just put it out there and be like, I wonder what people will think when they read this. And for the response to be the character was gang raped, that was extremely validating for me. And that was something that no one said to me when I was younger. So that was one thing that happened. And then the second thing that happened was that I would hear from women all the time um, who would say, you know, I'm a survivor of rape. Um, You know, how did you write that scene? And I didn't feel comfortable sharing my own story. And so I would kind of dodge the question and say, oh, well, you know, it's common. It happens to a lot of women. So I guess I kind of just drew from it like that. And I could see in their faces that they felt a little bit um, brushed aside and maybe like uh, maybe they got the sense from me that um, I could tell that they didn't necessarily believe me and, and they thought there was maybe more to the story and that I just didn't know how to answer the question. It just had been so long since I talked about it. So I knew I was going on this paperback tour and I knew I was going to be getting these questions. And so I decided that I wanted to be forthcoming from you know this point on. So I, I wrote the essay and now it feels really good to be able to have these open and co- candid conversations with readers um, you know, and, and to feel like I have a connection um, to people who have read the book and who have experienced similar things. And it's a it's a really heartening feeling to know that you're not alone. One of the aftermaths of this event, and I think the aftermath of this event, not just in your novel, but in society, is the blaming the victim mm-hmm. for the crime. And this uh, victims are often blamed for for things, whether you're sick, if you're you're sick because there's something morally wrong with you, mm-hmm. you experience this crime because there's something morally wrong with you. This idea of misfortune falling upon those who deserve it mm-hmm. is a scary thought. And I thought that you handled it really well in the book. And you seem to have handled it really well in your life as well. Could you talk about that? Well, thank you. And I think I think it's a little bit of human nature, you know, it's it's self-protective to think, well, that that can happen to me because I would never be so stupid as to go to a party with a bunch of guys and drink too much, you know, so I, I don't have to worry about being raped because I will never be that stupid. So I understand why people do it and I do it all the time, you know, and uh, if you hear about a terrible crime befalling someone, like your first thought is like, well, were they walking in a bad neighborhood or whatever? Because you just want to assure yourself, okay, well, that won't happen to me, you know? So on the one level, I do understand why people do that. Um, but then being a victim of a crime myself, you know, you also understand that like, actually, you know, you, no one can prevent bad things happening to you, you know? And so um, I... I wanted to uh, – I didn't like the idea well, – oh, I think there's an obsession in our culture uh, uh, with victimhood in a way and that we want our victims to be pure and deserving. Um, and I wanted to write about someone who is a victim who is not, you know, the shrinking violet, you know, and um, who maybe is not your idea of a perfect victim um, and that everybody around her, nobody treated her like she was a victim. But with the other incident that happens in the book, people who, who, 
you know, she was a victim along with these other people, but nobody ever treated her like that. Um, And so I wanted to kind of make a comment about um, the way we reserve kind of our sympathy and our empathy for people who we feel deserve it, you know, and that that that's not necessarily a fair thing to do. I think that as we uh, read the book, one of the things that I think is uh, so interesting and powerful about it is the way that your characters, you change our perception of the character mm-hmm. as it goes. And it's an interesting feeling to, as a reader to know that we are changing, not just the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, she goes on. She goes a, on a journey of self actualization. Is really what she's doing, mm-hmm. um, and it's a very delayed coming of age story in a way. So the reader is, is interesting. On this, yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? It is. So it's the reader is on this journey with her. It's an interrupted journey. It's mm-hmm. an interrupted uh, uh, coming of age. Mm-hmm. It just comes to a grinding halt and she ends up in this kind of ether mm-hmm. of of trying to live with herself and live with the way she's perceived. I, I'd like you to talk about the, there's something called theory of mind, which is this idea of how we build models of what other people think of us. Oh, so interesting. That, so that... Um, you're probably looking at me and thinking, well, he's thinking this about me, and I'm looking at you thinking, Mm -hmm. you're thinking this about me. And so that's how we kind of uh, gauge our our behavior. And I'm wondering if how much of that you considered as you are writing the novel in terms of creating the characters and and making that play into the plot itself, because that's a big part of the plot of this book, Mm -hmm. I think. Well, Ani is obsessed with that. She's obsessed with what people think about her. And so um, she, and it's an exhausting way to live, you know, so she, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, she, a foil to that is her kind of best friend in the book, Nell, who is someone who is unapologetic about the way she lives and doesn't, you know, kind of take crap from anybody and doesn't care that all her friends are starting to get married and um, settle down. And and she's like, I feel no pressure to do that. I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live it. And so she's meant to be this real kind of contrast to Ani, who is kind of obsessed, I guess, with this theory of mine where every person she's with, she's looking at them and is constantly thinking, what does this person think of me? What do I need to do to make this person like me or to get what I need from this person? How um, can I kind of position myself to do that? And so the uh, what I wanted her to, to realize is that that's no way to live. Um, and, and that's something that, that she starts to figure out uh, by the end of the book. I, I love the palpable sense of tension that Ani feels. Uh, you write at one point, she says, once I got the ring, the Tribeca zip code, the waspy white knight on one knee. Once I wasn't so distracted by trying to get my friend's formerly French manicured hands on these things, I was able to step back and reassess. I mm-hmm. think that this perception of her as being both ruthless and highly sympathetic, I think mm-hmm. this is a, a really great way of just keeping us 
reading it and really involved in her. She's very self-aware. So Mm -hmm. she, I think I said earlier, like she's really hard on people, but she's hardest on herself. And she knows exactly what she's doing. She knows that these are not, you know, the marriage just for the sake of having a ring on her finger and to say that I'm married to a guy from this distinguished family. She knows that's not the right thing to do. She knows it's not the noble thing to do, but she, she doesn't, it's not that she doesn't care. It's that she doesn't know any other way. She thinks that this is really the answer to all her problems, that if she can just fashion herself into someone who is just unassailably successful in all areas of her life, that she's someone that you just can't mess with, like that that no one would possibly try and hurt her anymore if she can be, um, if she can just be so kind of shored up in all these areas of her life and so it's it really is about a form of protection for her success is a form of social armor Mm -hmm. exactly it's it's like she's going to be her own her life will be the shining armor that protects her from what has happened to her in her past the kinds of things that have happened to her in her past and with this too i think that you do a, a wonderful job of making some points about, for example, uh, how Luke and his family were uh, big supporters of Mitt Romney mm-hmm. and who wanted to bring about an end to Planned Parenthood and to to weave in the idea that the way our laws are created, the way our society is created, the way that our politics are shaping our morals and messing mm-hmm. with them and maybe in a way they shouldn't be doing at all mm-hmm. it just shouldn't that shouldn't be an issue in terms of uh, political issues that that shapes her very real feelings are i mean that hasn't had an immediate effect on her life and mm-hmm. you demonstrate that vividly Mm-hmm. Right. So this is kind of an example of, of where her and Luke butt heads and, and her kind of passion to him is a little hysterical and silly because, you know, his response to her is, oh, well, they're, you know, they're never going to really defend Planned Parenthood, you know, that you don't have to really worry about that. And um, and he's just very kind of unsympathetic to to issues that really, you know, affect her, have affected her in her life. And, um, and you know, they just, they, there are just points on which they will never see eye to eye. You mentioned Nell earlier, and I think that she's an effective foil for, mm-hmm. for Ani. And did you conceive her of her that way? And I, th- I think you do a good job of, like, bringing her in for, uh, it's not, you know, it's not comic relief because she's not funny, but <laughs> but it's a, it's some kind of I guess a depressurization mm-hmm. point. Yeah, I think I wanted Ani to have some real support, you know, because she the the thing about Ani is that when she was younger, she had nobody who to stand up for her and nobody who had her back. Um, and so in adulthood, she is able to find a, a, that person, her kind of person. And and Nell to me is in a way almost like the North Star of the book. You know, she she is able to see Ani for who she is, and she's the one person where Ani can really let her hair down with. 
um, and say what she thinks and what she feels and have these honest conversations with her. Um, and I just didn't want, there are just so many people who failed Ani in so many different ways. And so I, I needed her to have someone who was there for her and someone who had her back and to also show that I, you know, I think that there are friendships like this in real life and to show that, you know, women can be absolutely vicious with each other, but then that they can also be so nurturing and so supportive and that there's a dual nature to sisterhood there. And, and so Nell represents the kind of other side of the coin. You were talking about nurturing and supportive. This must be happening to you now and you must be a force for that mm-hmm. with regards to this essay and letting people know the personal nature of what happened to you and how that works came out in the novel and must really change your interactions with the readers now. It it has, definitely. Um, I think, you know, just uh, through this experience, something I've realized is how connected um you know, we all are when when we're honest, you know, and when we're authentic about our experiences, you'll find so many people who can relate to what you've been through um, and who will kind of hold your hand through the experience and that you can provide that to them, too. So it's really I never would have anticipated that um, I would feel so kind of this was more about me just when I set out to write the essay, it was about me standing up for myself and, and reclaiming my voice and that that was supposed to be a very, a very powerful thing for me because when I was younger, it was taken from me. But what I didn't expect was this wave of support and to feel um, a lot less alone in my experiences um, because so many people reached out to say that, you know, they unfortunately could relate. You're... Have you written this screenplay yet? I have written the screenplay, yes. Mm-hmm. And so we understand Reese Witherspoon is producing the movie. Will she be starring in it? Do we know yet? I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking in terms of casting. But, yes, she is producing along with her producing partner, Bruna Papandria. They, um, their production company is Pacific Standard, and um, they produce Wild and Gone Girl. So they have a lot of great female-driven credits to their, um, to their name. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just as eager as anyone else to, to find out casting news. So <laughs> you must have started another novel. I hope, uh, do you know what it's about yet or I do? Um, so I have about a hundred pages of a second novel, um, and th- they're hoping it comes out in spring 2017. So we'll see. <laughs> that means I have to be finished by the end of the summer. So we'll see if that happens. <laughs> I've been speaking with Jessica Knoll. Her new novel is The Luckiest Girl Alive. Thank you for joining me, Jessica. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.